Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Colin Holmes about his new biography of the British fascist and wartime broadcaster William Joyce, entitled Searching for Lord Haw Haw, The Political Lives of William Joyce. Colin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Mark. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. I'm Emeritus Professor of History in the University of Sheffield, where I taught for 30 years. And my work has really been in the area of racism, anti-Semitism, and fascism. And my book on Joyce grows out of that particular interest. It is my first foray into biography, by the way, but I've written a great deal elsewhere. One of the things that that uh, long background uh, in comes across in the book, you uh, reference work that you did as far back as the 1970s. When That's you did that work, were you anticipating writing, writing a biography of Joyce at some point? I wasn't writing a biography of Joyce at that point, thinking about writing a biography of Joyce at that point, but um, he was an interesting character, I, I found, when I was working on anti-Semitism. And what I did, I um, kept a pr- slipping material into a file thinking that one day um, there might be something to write on him, that I might have the urge to write on him. And it was quite a long time later that, in fact, that did happen. What led you to... uh, Go ahead, sorry. My interest in him really arose through his anti-Semitism. What led you to make the transition into a biography of Joyce? I thought that, in fact, he's one of the most fascinating characters that, in fact, um, appeared on the British political scene in the 20th century, frankly. And um, it is a very turbulent life, a very short life, a very turbulent life, but uh, something which I thought could, in fact, uh, go along at a fair pace, as they say, in a biography. One of the things that stood out as... uh you explained early on in your biography is that it's not just that he had such a fascinating life, but it's also a life that we're still in the process of discovering as archives open up and various files are declassified. And I was wondering if you could speak a bit uh, before we talk about Joyce himself about what it is that we're still learning about him and maybe even what we still have yet to learn. Yeah, I, I mean, that is a very interesting point. Um, when I first developed a serious interest in Joyce, some of the files which related to him and his contacts simply weren't available. Because although technically government files are available in this country uh, after 30 years, they can be held back. Uh, there can be what they call a period of extended closure. And quite a lot of material on Joyce was in fact held back. And then in the 90s, more material started to appear. But even so, there were things about his life that I thought needed to be understood, and the records simply weren't available. And to get hold of some of this information, I had to put in what are called freedom of information requests to various government departments. 
And although technically they have to reply within 21 working days, sometimes on the 21st day they simply said, could we have more time, please, to discover your request, to, to decide on your request? And so it was in quite, quite often a very lengthy process. And I'm also aware, even now, that some files on Joyce, which shed light, for example, on his uh, Nazi contacts in Britain in the 1930s, simply aren't available. They haven't been released. And these would be files which were compiled by the British Security Service, MI5. And MI5 is exempt from freedom of information legislation. You cannot request a file from MI5. If MI5 doesn't release it, then that is the end of the matter. And there's quite a number of things relating to Joyce which simply haven't appeared yet in the public domain. But eventually I took the view that I did in fact have sufficient information, you can see the book is very well documented, mm -hmm. um, to, uh, to write a biography. And I think I could understand the main contours of his career. But uh, it's quite possible that there will be some detail which could be added later as more material does come into the public domain, if it ever does. Some material might never come, never appear. One of the uh, reasons why I think that's so important, the, the need for that documentation is, and this is a point that you return to uh, throughout the book, is Joyce's effort uh, to define his own life and how his effort to basically present himself at various points confuses some of our understanding of him. And this goes all the way back to his birth. And I was wondering if you could speak to that and, and, and how that becomes very relevant later on. Yes. Um, the birth is, is problematic. Uh, as you say, Joyce's life is surrounded by invention and what I call fakery. Um, he's surrounded by so many myths, which he and his family and his acolytes have actually perpetuated. And quite a lot of writers have been persuaded by these myths. But if we go back to the birth, the traditional view is that Joyce was born in Brooklyn on the 24th of April, 1906. And I do have an American birth certificate, which in fact registers his birth. But if you listen to what he and his family say in testimony at various points in time, He's actually born anywhere between 1903 and 1906. Uh, why is there this dissimulation? I mean, I know that every family has its secrets, but I still wonder what the family, family secret was in the case of the Joyces. Um, although there are, say there is that American birth certificate in 1906, um, I do have some doubts as to whether how authentic it really is. Um, it is signed by an American physician, Charles Yerden, and Yerden certainly existed. Uh, I'd been in touch with the American medical people on this, and he was a doctor, a qualified doctor, who died in New York in 1937. But he's missing from all the census returns in the early 20th century. Now, to miss one is unfortunate, but to miss three? And I say in my book, the Joyce family was so fortunate to find him at home to register a birth. Um, so there is this puzzle um, surrounding his birth. And there's this very curious piece of evidence that um, in August 1939, just before he goes to Germany to work for Hitler, he applies for a job in England. This is 1939. And the record card, which I've seen, describes him as an Irish gent. And it also says that he claims to be 33, in other words, born in 1906. 
But the person who was interviewing him says, in fact, he was born in 1903. He's actually 36. And that not just would have changed his age, but where he was born. Yes, I mean, um, he could have been born in Britain. I could have been born in Ireland. His father was Irish. I suspect he wouldn't be born in Ireland um, because at that stage, of course, his parents weren't married. And I doubt whether a, a single woman would be giving birth in Ireland was something that uh, would have happened at that time, voluntarily. So I think he might have been born in Britain. And his, his grandfather was a very well-qualified medical man. And I suppose all this could be glossed over in, in the case of Joyce's mother, if she were married, if she were pregnant and conceived a child before she married. Because there's this very curious situation where when Joyce's parents marry in 1905, um, the family are opposed to the marriage, her family, Gertrude Brooks' family are opposed to the marriage. And they don't go to America. The parents don't go to America when she, when she goes to get married. They send a brother who's a lawyer. And one of the other brothers said, my brother went to see that things were done properly. Now, what does that mean? So, you know, I think there, there are problems, there are uncertainties surrounding Joyce's actual origins. But of course, in 1905, when he was on trial, um, the, the fact, the point was made that... Um, well, it's very interesting, actually, because Shawcross, the attorney general who was prosecuting, says, I mean, I paraphrase him here, but he says he may or he may not have been born in United States America. In other words, he's not, he's not convinced, is he, by that comment. Um, but the point was that Shawcross said wherever he was born, in 1933, in 1938, and in 1939, he'd applied for a British passport, and on each occasion he'd said he was British. And so, therefore, he owed an allegiance to the crown. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit on his family's background. Uh, who were his parents and uh, where were they in terms of uh, Anglo-Irish society or Western society in the early 20th century? His mother, as I say, uh, her name was Gertrude Emily Brooke. Brooke is spelt with an E on the end, by the way. And her father was a medical officer of health for Crompton, an area in Lancashire, quite close to Manchester. And so he was very well connected. Very, He had degrees from three universities. And not only did he draw an, an income from his medical practice, but uh, he also had invested heavily in property. So the family also had income from property investments as well. So they were really upper middle class, um, very well connected indeed. Whereas Joyce's father... Uh, came from the west of Ireland and, and was not, in fact, particularly well educated. And family worked the land in, in there, but rather than continue to work the land, Michael Joyce, William Joyce's father, decided to go to America, as many people from that part of Ireland did in the late 19th century. And in 1894, he became an American citizen. And um, he was living in America when Gertrude Brooke, as she then was, and, and, and he married in 1905 in New York. The family then returned to Ireland in 1909. Joyce's mother hated America. She, she just couldn't stand New York. She couldn't take the, the teeming, throbbing mass of, of New York. And she was terribly unhappy there. And I think the marriage generally was unhappy because there was a religious conflict there from the very beginning. You see, the Brooke family were Protestants, whereas Michael Joyce was a Catholic. 
And so it, from a very early age, Joyce was tossed between two competing religions, Protestantism and Catholicism. And so there was tension in the household from a very early stage. Now, uh, the family returns to Ireland. And uh, as you describe, it's, they're, they're fairly prosperous. Uh, the, the Joyce's own property, they're, they're, they're fairly well established in the, yes. the Irish upper middle class. And then you have uh, the First World War, and then you have the Irish War of Independence. At this That's point, right. Joyce is a teenager. And I was wondering if you could speak a bit to his uh, involvement in the uh, war and how and the role that might have played in terms of shaping his uh outlook in the, on the world and his political views. Yes, I mean, the Jewish family are very interesting because although they're living in what is now known as Southern Ireland, the Irish Republic, um, they are very pro-British. They hate the Irish nationalists. And yet this is, of course, a rising Irish nationalism, 1916, the Easter Rising in Dublin, which leads eventually to the independence of most of Ireland, um, except the, the, the northern counties. Um, but the Joyce family hated that prospect. Uh, they were very pro-British, they were pro-Empire, and um, in that sense, they, they encountered a great deal of hostility in Galway, where they were living, because they were regarded as being slightly uh, unusual and exceptional and um, hardly desirable people to have around if they were pro-British. And uh, Joyce himself took that a stage further, because although he's young, he was fascinated from a very early age by a military life and from a very early age he's actually involved with the British military in Ireland and he's particularly involved with someone called Captain Keating who was in fact in army intelligence and I suspect that uh, Keating was actually drawing information from Joyce, gossip that Joyce had heard, not high level stuff but low level information that Joyce had heard, possibly from his father or his father's friends what was going on, and he was passing this information to Keating. And, of course, as a result of that, uh, Joyce's own position, William Joyce's position in Ireland, became very precarious. And there was an Irish nationalist attempt to assassinate him in 1921, which failed. But um, Keating, I think, felt a sense of obligation towards the lad. And he arranges what we would now call a rat line for him and gets him out of Ireland. So Joyce leaves Ireland in 1921. And he never returned except as a dead man when he's reburied there in 1976. And the Joyce family uh, come out also two years later, 1923. In the meantime, of course, they've actually had a downturn in their economic fortunes. Their property was actually affected by the Irish nationalists. And so they felt they never properly recovered from that. And the result is that Joyce was fiercely Irish, fiercely anti-Irish nationalist throughout his life. He was very pro-empire, and he thought that what had happened in Ireland could be the start of a domino effect. What happened in Ireland could be happening in India, it could be any part of the globe that then was painted red could be given away by the British government. And he hated that prospect. He wanted Britain to remain Great Britain with a great empire. You mentioned that soon after he goes to Britain, he uh, starts participating in politics. Uh, initially, his association is with the Conservative Party. But mm. you also identify that at a very early point, he's involved in this budding fascist movement that's beginning to take root uh, in British politics. 
Yes, he is, the British fascist. It's the first movement in Britain to openly call itself a fascist movement. And Joyce is, is involved in there in, in the early, early and mid-1920s. And I think it's a very important phase in his career because mixing with these people, he absorbs certain ideas that never left him. Um, he developed particularly, for example, a hatred of Bolshevism. 1917, remember, the Russia, revolution in Russia. He hated the prospect of Bolshevism spreading its influence, and that was a theme that was very prominent in the British fascists. Um, they were also very pro-empire, as Joyce was. Uh, they were also um, hostile towards Jews, and Joyce is also absorbing that as well. So I think his early involvement with British fascists is actually a very important phase in his career, and people have never really in the past given that much attention. They've written off this group as being of no significance whatsoever. But it's an important seedbed, I think, for Joyce's ideas, political ideas. And Joyce did live his life as a politician. He was, above all, a politico. He's, he ate, slept, and drank politics. And this all starts in the 1920s when he's absorbing these ideas, particularly when he's in London. You see, all these ideas were fermenting in London at that time. Now, as he's living in London and being getting involved in politics, he's also acquiring an education. And mm. you talk about the interplay between the two, how he constructs an image of himself as being this uh, great, uh, you know, uh, you know, greatly gifted intellectually, uh, greatly, very successful academically. And yet he encounters a, a lot of frustration and a lot of his, uh, a lot of his ambitions, such as to join the foreign office, are, are thwarted. Yes, I mean, he, I mean, once he leaves Ireland, he feels that he's constantly thwarted. For example, he would have relished a military career, but he couldn't have a military career because he was discharged as being unfit anyway from the army. When they took him, when they took him out of Ireland in twenty-one, they they couldn't take him into the regular army because of health problems. He'd had rheumatic fever. Um, he wants, in fact, to uh, pursue a postgraduate career. He got a first-class honours degree in London in nineteen twenty-seven, um, but um, in fact, it, that that came to nothing. He, he actually that was an that was an abortive academic exercise. He wanted, as you say, to join the Foreign Office, and he receives very poor reviews from the people who uh, who, who taught him. And um, and so that comes to nothing. So you can see him in the 1920s being constantly thwarted wherever he turns. He feels he's running into a dead end. And yet he feels that he's actually someone who's got great ability, great talents, because you see from a very early age, Joyce saw himself as a kind of God. Mm -hmm. uh, his early hero was Napoleon, which is interesting. And he just felt that he had so much to offer. He, could, he thought he could read the political runes of society better than anybody else. In other words, he was a narcissist. The world turned around him. And I think that comes from his mother. She actually said, you know, things to him like, you are the sugar in my tea. Without you, there's no empire. And he's absorbing all this. And he's puffing up his own qualities within his own mind. And, and then with that position, why can't I get these jobs? Why are people so short-sighted? Why can't they take me on? You know, what is the problem here? And so it becomes disillusioned very quickly. Another name that pops up that reinforces that is Thomas Carlyle. You talk about how early on he takes to Carlyle's writings the idea of the great man in history. I was struck by how uh, when he has the National Socialist League, the intellectual uh, think tank in it is called the Carlyle Group. 
It is. Because, I mean, as you say, Carlyle was interested in the great man. Joyce was someone, in fact, who looked for gods in history. Uh, in Ireland, for example, he thought one god was Edward Carson, who had actually stood out against the uh, uh, against total Irish independence and argued for the protection of Ulster as part of Britain, part of the UK. And so Carson was an early god. And so Joyce is looking for gods. Uh, Hitler, of course, became a god. But at the same time, while he's searching for gods, he actually sees himself as a god as well. What did that uh, perception, uh, what role did that perception play in terms of his relationship with Oswald Mosley, who really uh, emerges in the 1930s as the preeminent figure in British fascism? Yes, I mean, Mosley formed the British Union of Fascists in 1932, and Joyce joins the BUF um, six months or so after it had been formed. And I think he thought that Mosley was a bit of a Johnny-come-lately to fascism, because whereas Joyce had been a fascist in the 20s, Mosley had been active in the Labour Party and also the Conservative Party. He'd been at Westminster, been, a, been an MP. And um, Joyce had this view that, in fact, he knew better than Mosley how fascism should develop. And that was actually quite fatal because Mosley himself was a narcissist. So you've got a clash, really, of two people who thought they knew better than anybody else what should be done politically. And so there is this clash, there is this tension from the very beginning in 1932. And Joyce was obviously a very difficult colleague for Mosley. What was... <laughs> what, what was uh, Joyce's role in the BUF? Was he just a foot soldier or did he have a position of some prominence? No, he was actually more important than that. He was actually basically the director of propaganda. And um, he wrote innumerable newspaper articles in The Black Shirt and Action. He wrote more intellectual articles in The Fascist Quarterly. And he spoke up and down the country with a relentless energy. Joyce has got an abundance of energy for political activity, quite amazing, really. And so he did, in fact, assume a very important role. And some people did think of him as actually the future leader uh, of the BUF. They thought he might, in fact, at some point replace most of it. There was a view in the security service that, in fact, he might be the man of the future um, or would actually take Mosley's place. So, no, he wasn't just an ordinary foot soldier. He had a very important position. He was a very powerful figure. You describe in your book the uh, reactions to his oratory, how very impressed people were by him. And he also had a dramatic appearance in terms of this scar that ran across yes. his face. Yes. And, um, I mean, sorry. And, and, and how that is, he makes that part of his uh, part of his uh, crusade, his tirade against Jewish Bolshevism. And yet, as you explained, the, the, the story is, is, you know, could very well be a lot more complicated than, than, than uh, he'd like to claim. Yes, I mean, by the 1920s, and this again reflects that influence of the British fascists, which I told you about, he's starting to use the Jews as an explanatory tool. Um, he says, for example, that his, his postgraduate career was choked off because a thieving Jewish tutor stole his research notes. I mean, there's no evidence for that whatsoever. But the major incident is, you say, the scarring, which occurred in Lambeth in 1924, when he was at a meeting of the British fascists. Now, Joyce always said that he was actually slashed by a Jewish communist. But I interviewed Joyce's first wife, and she said it was absolute myth. He wasn't, in fact, slashed by a Jewish communist. He was slashed by an Irish woman. And if you look at an account of the meeting, they're singing about Erin when Joyce is slashed. 
I think the Irish problem followed him to London. And although they'd missed assassinating him in, in 1921 in Galway, someone was determined to get him in London. And so it is, it's a fabrication to say this was actually a Jewish communist who did this. But you can see a pattern building up. My lecture notes, my research notes are stolen by a thieving Jewish tutor, a Jewish, slash me in, a Jewish communist who slashed me in Lambeth. The anti-Semitism, you see, is building up as an explanatory tool in, during this period. And the interesting question is, did he come to believe his own tale or did he just recognize that this was another part of his brief against the Jewish communists? I think he repeated it so often to so many people that he probably did, in fact, end up believing it himself, frankly. And you also point out in the book that his very vocal uh, anti-Semitic uh, uh, rhetoric was in some ways a problem, or at least uh, is perceived as having been a problem for Mosley, especially as the 1930s wore on. And I was wondering if you could take us uh, back a step and explain the, the arc of the British Union of Fascists from when it was established by Mosley in uh, 32 and uh, 1937. Yeah, I mean, what, I mean, it, it is the largest uh, fascist movement in Britain in the, in the, in the 1930s. Um, at its peak, it probably had about 40,000 followers. And uh, when it starts, um, there is a view, I think, that in fact Mosley might um, gain political influence. And certainly the Daily Mail, one of the very big newspapers, comes out in favour of Mosley. There is this headline in 1934, Hurrah for the Black Shirts. Um, but this, in fact, this expectation that Mosley had wasn't, in fact, fulfilled. And by about 1937, it's quite clear that the best days of the British Union of Fascists were behind it. Um, they, um, they hadn't, in fact, made the major breakthrough that they thought they were going to make. And uh, by 1937, they're actually in some financial difficulties, and partly because Italian funding, Mussolini was putting money into the British Union of Fascists in its early days. That was drying up. And also the economy was starting to recover. And so there is a problem here for the British Union of Fascists. Uh, it does, of course, revive again just before the war, because the argument is, another war is unthinkable. We don't want to get involved in a war that the Jews have created. And that does bring people back into the movement. So there is a recovery in the late 1930s. But from the early expectations of the very early 30s, by 37, the movement to some extent is actually running on reduced power. You mentioned the uh, role of the elections in East London as sort of this pivotal turning point where Mosley goes all in and hopes to have this victory. And Joyce is participating in electoral politics. And how does that turn out and uh, what does that then lead to? Well, they run candidates in the East End of London in 1937, and but none of these candidates is actually elected. And so, you know, Mosley, again, Moses' hopes, his expectations, his ambitions are, are being thwarted. And um, in the, by 1937, uh, he decides that he, he has to trim the movement because um, what he'd hoped for, the great success, uh, hadn't come about. And so there is this conflict between Joyce and Mosley, which is always simmering away, um, breaks into the, comes out into the open in 1937. Um, Mosley wields the big axe uh, in, uh, in, in March 1937 and removes quite a lot of people from the movement, including Joyce. But I have to say, 
and this has never been picked up by anybody else, Joyce had actually anticipated Mosley doing this. And so he'd formed his alternative organization before Mosley swung the axe and trimmed his movement. Joyce had formed the National Socialist League in January 1937, and that was to be the vehicle that sustained him in the late 1930s. And you just you use the word sustain. It's a very interesting word because you're not just talking politically. You're also talking financially as well. Yes. I mean, I mean, every movement needs political backers. And Joyce did, in fact, have certain people who believed in him. I mean, for example, there's a man called Alexander Scrimger, who is a stockbroker, extremely wealthy. And uh, when Scrimger's alive, then Joyce could rely upon him for finance. The unfortunate thing for Joyce is that Scrimger himself dies in 37, and that cuts off um, some of the finance that Joyce was expecting. There are other people who do put money into the movement, but that was undoubtedly a blow for Joyce, the death of Scrimger in 37. Um, and there are other people, in fact, there's a suggestion that W.E.D. Allen, who is a leading fascist figure, might have put some money into the movement. It's uncertain whether he did. Uh, there's also a man called Bainbridge, who's a businessman from the Northeast. He certainly seemed to have supported the movement. Um, so Joyce was, in fact, needing funds because he was basically a full-time politician. I mean, he'd given up any hopes of being an army officer, any hopes of being in the civil service, any hopes of being an academic. Uh, all this had gone. He was now a full-time political he had to make a living. He was doing some teaching on the side to make ends meet, but that was always subsidiary to um, to his main political uh, ambitions, really. Does the National Socialist League ever succeed in eclipsing the British Union of fascists? No, it doesn't. In fact, it's only a very small group. And it's doubtful whether the National Socialist League could have kept going for, and, until, until 1939, um, without the support of John McNabb, who actually was one of Joyce's closest friends. And I say that, in fact, uh, McNabb was really Joyce's Engels. Engels funded Marx, as we know. And I think McNabb, who had money, also helped to fund Joyce. And Joyce was terrible at keeping relationships going. He fell out with almost everybody. But he kept on McNabb's side. And But there's reasons for that. McNabb had got the money. And so, therefore, McNabb, in that sense, was very useful. But they did share interests as well in sport and in, and in literature um, and in politics. Now, you talk about 1939, and obviously it's a date with which we're all familiar. Mm. What is it that it, – does this problem with finance lead to Joyce's decision to uh, travel to Germany, to basically move to Germany uh, on the eve of uh, the Second World War? No, I don't think it does. I mean, I think the reasons are more complex than that. You see, if you read the standard biographies of Joyce, they say, oh, he didn't really want to go to Germany. He only went to Germany because he was tipped off that he was about to be interned. The British interned fascists in the Second World War who were regarded as a danger to the state. And the suggestion is that Joyce was tipped off. He was going to be interned. And rather than being interned, he went to Germany. In other words, he was pushed there. That's the argument that they use. But I don't think that's the case at all. I think Joyce was actually pulled to Germany because when he went in August 1939, it was quite clear by then that war was inevitable. And Joyce wanted to be involved with Hitler. He regarded Britain as under the Jewish influence. He regarded it really as like a colony like Palestine. And his view was that British society had to be cleansed. The stables had to be cleansed. And who would do it? Mosley wouldn't do it. The established political parties wouldn't do it. No, it would take Hitler to do it. And Joyce thought Hitler was the man to do that task. 
and he wanted to be involved in it. He wanted to be part of that crusade against a stagnant Britain and make Britain great again. And that's what went to Germany. Now, uh, there is, of course, perhaps an element of personal careerism in this as well, because... Yes, because, in fact, Joyce, I mean, that was, the, that was a major factor in his going, that he, that he sees that this is how politics is developing. But Joyce is also, as a narcissist, thought it was inevitable that he, Joyce, once he got to Germany, once he got involved with the Nazis, of course they would see his talents. The British hadn't recognised how great he was, but the Germans, the Nazis, certainly would. And so, therefore, he would have a major role to play in sorting Britain out when Britain was, was, was defeated in the war. And yet, that was still going to be very far off. He gets to Germany, and it's not as though, you know, that Goebbels is there to shake his hand and, and, and march him down the red carpet to the sound of a marching band. He, he gets to Germany, and it's, a, it, it's not exactly a, a, a warm reception, is it? No, it isn't. In fact, I mean, when he gets there, he has a very difficult time. Um, he isn't welcome with open arms. I think there's probably some suspicion that, he, in fact, who is this man and why has he come over? Is he a British agent? Can we trust him? Um, and so he depends upon a, a contact from Britain, Mrs. Eckersley, who is actually in Berlin at that time. And she gives him an introduction to various people. And this eventually re results in a radio uh, interview. And amazing, Terence Rattigan, the playwright, imagines that scene beautifully where they say to Joyce, oh, yours is a voice that no one will ever listen to. Um, but in fact, they decide eventually to actually give him a contract. But it wasn't an easy transition. He wasn't welcome with open arms. He wasn't regarded as, as a great catch. Uh, he has to work his way towards prominence in Germany. But you see, even then, uh, he never met Goebbels and he never shook Hitler's hand. I was wondering if you could uh, speak a bit about the idea of Lord Haw Haw and uh, the confusion, if you will, that exists with Lord Haw Haw and William Joyce. Because in many ways, Lord Haw Haw wasn't one person. No, I mean, when the war started, um, the people could pick up the broadcasts from Germany in Britain. Um, listening to Germany wasn't banned in this country. And um, there was a fascination with the people who were broadcasting in, on, on Nazi radio. And Jonah Barrington, a British journalist, um, coins the, the term Lord Haw Haw for one of these speakers. Now, it's quite likely, almost certain, in fact, that he wasn't listening to Joyce at that point. He was probably listening to um, Norman Bailey Stewart, another broadcaster, or possibly someone called Jack Trevor, an actor who also worked for the Nazis. But very quickly, uh, that Haw Haw persona does in fact centre on Joyce himself. And so by about 1940, uh, I think he has actually assumed that Haw Haw role. But certainly you're right, in the very early days, in 1939, although MI5 knew that he was broadcasting, they knew Joyce was on the radio, he wasn't in fact the, the original Haw Haw, but he does become that by 1940. Mm -hmm. Now... This as he's becoming Lord Haw Haw, uh, he's you know, you know, he's on the air, he's broadcasting. What are his broadcasts like, and and how are they being received by his audience? Well, the, the broad the, um, the broadcasts were views on the news, and um, he evening broadcasts, and uh, they started with the phrase "Germany calling, Germany calling," which of course people still remember, and um, these uh, were actually. Presenting the news, basically, from the Nazi standpoint, 
and also very cleverly playing on British anxieties, um, people, in fact, who uh, had family fighting in the forces uh, would sometimes be told that, in fact, so-and-so and so-and-so were actually prisoners of war, um, information they didn't have from the British authorities, but Joyce could dangle in front of them. You see a sense of power there, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, and also, I mean, he would taunt uh, British listeners as well. I mean, the famous phrase is, where is the Ark Royal? Where is the Ark Royal? We know where it is, but you don't know where it is, and we can actually destroy it any time we want. Um, but these broadcasts were, in fact, extremely powerful. There is a view, you see, in a lot of the literature that Joyce was a joke, that people didn't take him seriously. But that is completely untrue. He was taken very seriously indeed in the early stages of the war. The image that he wasn't significant only starts to come in in 1943 when the war turns against Germany. 43, Germany's defeat in the desert, North African desert. 43 is Stalingrad. The war goes against, starts to go against Germany. But until then, Joyce is regarded as a very powerful broadcaster. And he had an audience in Britain of about 8 million people nightly. That's a lot of people. And if you listen to some of those broadcasts, particularly after the fall of France in 1940, this is very powerful stuff even now. And you can imagine people in 1940, the German army has sighed its way through Luxembourg, through France, through Holland. They're at the, they're at the channel. They're looking over towards Britain. And Joyce said, you know, that this is one of the great days in German military history. And then he goes on to say, and of course, your turn is going to come. And so the day, the hour, the minute, these are Hitler's secrets. But make no mistake, you're going to be invaded. And then he said, your papier-mâché defences will stand no chance against the strength of the Wehrmacht. We can easily overcome you. And in 1940, this was actually quite frightening stuff for people to be listening to. You mentioned a a case or two where people who were listening to him subsequently committed suicide, so convinced they were of of what he was uh, telling them. Yes, I mean, in Sheffield, for example, where I am now, I mean, Sarah Bellamy, a housewife, she's 53, uh, she, they listen, she, she listens to the broadcast with her husband, and the husband decides to go to bed, and she said, well, you go to bed, I'll just wash up the supper pots. So she washes up the supper pots, and she puts them away, and then she puts her head in the gas oven, and he finds her the next morning. But Joyce was doing more than just broadcasting. He was also writing, he was... Uh, His role seemed to be growing as the war went on in terms of uh, uh, German propaganda. Yes, he wrote a very important book called Twilight Over England. It wasn't called that. Darmarung Uber England. It didn't circulate in Britain in the war, but it actually uh, circulated in Europe. That's his big work of 1940. But he's also writing newspaper articles as well. And the Nazis certainly held his work in high esteem. I mean, Goebbels calls him the best horse in my stable or in our stable. Um, so he was very highly regarded by the German authorities by this time. And he certainly has this growing portfolio of interest in the war, just as he'd had a growing portfolio of interest in the BUF before the war. He was a very able, intelligent person, you know, and uh, he could put his mind to writing and, um, and, and uh, he's very good at propaganda. And, of course, as the war goes along and, you know, his greatest efforts obviously are not enough to win the war, uh, does he ever try to hedge his bets or uh, seek a way out? No, he doesn't, actually. Um, Of course, there was a way out for him, which, in fact, he did, in fact, uh, uh, mention from time to time that, in fact, he got this American birth certificate. 
So his view was that, well, if the war goes badly for Germany, then the British can't do anything to me because I've got this American birth certificate. And that was the stage, of course, when America wasn't in the war. But no, in general, he doesn't hedge his bets. Um, he never renounced fascism. If you listen to the last drunken recording that he made, it was never went out on air. But, I mean, it ends with that defiant cry, Es liebe Deutschland, Heil Hitler. In other words, he retracts nothing from his fascism. And he thought that the British and the other Europeans were foolish to turn down the lure of fascism. Because what have they done? They'd open Europe to the threat of Bolshevism and they would pay the price for this. So, no, he doesn't, in fact, hedge his bets. He retracts nothing. Nothing. Although while he is unrepentant about his views, he doesn't exactly brashly turn himself over to the authorities once the Allies occupied Germany. How is he eventually caught? Well, I mean, towards the end of the war, of course, it's absolute chaos and broadcasting from Berlin becomes impossible. So he moved to Arpen, first of all, near the Dutch frontier. He was terrified. Well, he hated that prospect. So there'd be no alcohol in Arpen, which would be no use to me. Because <laughs> he, he was basically an alcoholic or became, or at least a head, very head drinker. And so was Margaret, his second wife. She died eventually of cirrhosis of the liver. Um, but then he moved from Arpen to Hamburg. And uh, with the Allied troops closing in on Hamburg, that's where he gives that final recording I quoted, where it's S. Lieber Deutschland recording. He then moves again, and he moves with the Nazis to Flensburg, which is the last Nazi bolt hole. And uh, the rump of a Nazi state was administered from here un until the 23rd of May 19 1945. And Joyce stays with the Nazis right to the very end. But then, of course, he's on the run. Um, where does he go? He can't get into neutral Denmark very easily, or neutral, De no, neutral Sweden, rather, because of the problems in the Baltic. So he's holed up in the Flensburg area. And uh, one day he quarrels with Margaret, his second wife. They, live, they had a quarrelsome existence. And uh, he sets off for a walk, and he sees some British officers gathering firewood. And, of course, he can't resist the temptation to take centre stage. See, the narcissism is coming through again. I've got to be centre stage in all this. And he says to the officers, there's some more over here, more firewood over here. And then he speaks to them in English. And one of the officers thinks, wait a minute, I, I think that's William Joyce's voice. <laughs> and so he said, you wouldn't be William Joyce by any chance, would you? Or where's that effect? And Joyce reaches for his pocket because in the pocket he's got a false German passport. He's become Wilhelm Hansen. But the officer thinks he's reaching for a gun. And so he shoots at Joyce, wounds him, disables him, and Joyce is captured. I was wondering if you could uh, tell us a bit about uh, what happened to him afterward, in particular uh, the trial and some of the challenges that the British faced in prosecuting him. Yeah, I mean, when he's put on, I mean, first of all, he has to be uh, treated in hospital for his wounds, of course. And then he's interviewed in hospital by MI5 and the report is sent back to London. And then in September, he's actually put on trial at the Old Bailey. And um, he pleads not guilty. I mean, to plead guilty would mean the automatic death sentence. So he pleads not guilty. So the prosecution has to prove that he was, in fact, a traitor. And they do have... A problem, you see, that in fact, if you take it that he was born in America 
how can an American citizen be hanged by the British for treason? But uh, but the prosecution said, um, yes, but wait a minute. He had applied for a British passport on three occasions. On each occasion, he said he was British and therefore did owe an allegiance to the crown. But that doesn't quite solve the problem because they wanted to accuse him of treason throughout the war. But they couldn't do that because by 1940, he'd actually become German, which complicated matters for them. So the only period when they could, in fact, accuse him of treason was between 39 and 40. In other words, in that small window before that British passport, the last British passport had expired. Until 1940, he did still hold a British passport. And so they charge him for what he did in that period. You mentioned the other complication that existed there, which is that Joyce doesn't publicly identify himself on the air until 1941. So they also had to establish that the voice that was speaking in 1940 was William Joyce's and not, say, one of the other broadcasters. And, of course, they do that because Detective Inspector Hunt uh, was one of the policemen who'd actually uh, been uh, looking after Joyce's interest, looking at Joyce's interest in the 1930s. Uh, Joyce under surveillance as a fascist agitator and Hunter being one of the police officers who was on the job as it were and uh, the prosecution conveniently found Hunt and uh, Hunt very conveniently said well I was off duty on the south coast in uh, 1939 and I was twiddling with the dials on my radio and I suddenly heard this voice from Germany and I recognised that voice, it was William Joyce's voice and uh, he was actually talking about uh, the destruction of, 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 of Dover. And so, therefore, that was a key piece of evidence uh, for the prosecution. Of course, the, the defence wasn't impressed by this because he could not give neither a date nor a time nor any further details uh, of, the, of the broadcast, which is very strange for a senior policeman. But that evidence was actually that evidence proved crucial because they now had evidence that when Joyce still held a British passport, he was broadcasting for the Nazis and talking about the destruction of Britain. And that was a very powerful tool for the prosecution for Shawcross. What was Joyce's demeanor during this trial? Was he defiant? Was he repentant? No, no. Joyce, I mean, people expected Joyce because words have been Joyce's forte, you know, whether it's spoken word or the written word. Words were his world to some extent. And so people expect some great confrontation at the trial. But when Joyce is asked how he pleads, he says not guilty. And those are the very last words he spoke. He did not give any evidence at all on his own behalf. He never appears in the witness box to defend his actions. And he didn't do that because he thought that would be demeaning. He had no case to answer. He said, of course, I don't have a case to answer because I did it from the best of intentions. I went to Germany. I supported Hitler because I realized how corrupt and rotten Britain was. I wanted to restore the country to its greatness. That can't be treason, can it? That was one line of argument. The other one, as a narcissist, of course, as a god, he thought, why should I get involved in being cross-examined by anybody? Gods don't get cross-examined. I want to be above the battle. And he makes that point specifically in one of his prison letters. So, no, he didn't, in fact, confront anybody at the trial. He didn't, he didn't have to deny anything or, or agree to anything. He never spoke. Not guilty were the last words that Joyce uttered in public. And ultimately, the court disagreed with him. 
Yes, on the 19th of September 1945, uh, Joyce is actually found guilty of treason and um, sentenced to death. That was a penalty for treason. Of course, the very interesting thing is that the judge who pronounced sentence on him had already called Joyce a traitor in 1940. Now, today, a judge who had actually said of the accused that they were actually guilty of treason would not, in fact, be allowed to take part in later trial. But uh, these were these were difficult circumstances. 1945-46, the war just ended. People remembered loved ones who died. People lying dead under rubble in London and, and in Sheffield. And so the atmosphere was quite different. And although Mr. Justice Tucker at a trial in 1940 had called Joyce a traitor, there was no objection to his being trial judge in 1945. And so he does sentence Joyce to death on the 19th of September 1945. But Joyce does, of course, appeal. Um, he appeals in, uh, in October 1945. And in November, the, the appeal is rejected. So it's rejected by the appeal court. He then has another line of, of, of defense. He appeals to the House of Lords in December and the Lords in fact um, still found Joyce guilty by four to one now a, a dissenting judgment would normally halt the march to the death penalty but it didn't in Joyce's case but interesting the Lords don't give their reasons why they turned down Joyce's appeal until February by which time of course Joyce is dead there's one further avenue for Joyce after the Lords had turned down his appeal he could appeal to the Home Office and the prerogative of the Crown but in fact that also failed so he's found guilty in September all his appeals are exhausted in December and uh, he's he's hanged in January 46 mm-hmm. the reason why his appeals were turned down was not given until February 46 and the argument was that in fact he still owed an allegiance to the Crown because he had those three British passports he had the protection of the crown, therefore he owed it an allegiance wherever he might be. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? I'm working on uh, a, a book of essays. It's a memorial volume for Professor Bill Fishman, who taught in the University of London. It's called An East End Legacy. He was a historian of the East End, and I, I got a chapter in there on Jews and crime in the East End of London. It returns to my early interest in anti-Semitism. And I'm also editing for a publication more, but it was obvious to Alexander Barron. But uh, I'm also thinking about uh, another big project, and I haven't quite decided on that. Before I put pen to paper, as it were, I want to be absolutely sure that I want to do this, because as you, I'm sure you know, you can't write any book unless there's what Freud would call ego involvement. You've got to be committed to it. You've got to be involved in it. You've got to want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still searching around for that, that particular theme. People say, oh, you've got at least another book in you. Yes, but I have to write it, mm-hmm. and I have to get the right topic for me. And Joyce was the right topic because, I'm, if I may say so, I mean, I'm happier with the Joyce book than I have been with the earlier books that I've written. That's, that's, can't argue with that. <laughs> well, Professor Holmes, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. Uh, I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much indeed, Mark. Nice to talk to you. <laughs>